Last week we looked at Jonah's prayer when he was uh, in the belly of the great fish, and uh, we see his, uh, his turning from where he had been before that. Before that, we saw him running from God's clear call, which is in the very beginning of Jonah, where he was told to, to go to Nineveh, and he uh, began a path immediately for Tarshish. And so uh, we pick up this week with the account, beginning in chapter 3. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow together. Lord, we pray now in these moments that you would use your word to penetrate our hearts, our very souls, that you would speak to us, that you would cause us to hear that which you speak, that even in this you would be preparing us to commune with you, at your table. Lord, we plead with you for this, not because we deserve it, but we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to look today, as you can see, at 
the idea of repentance. And uh, I want us to begin by defining it. I don't believe in uh, me coming up with new definitions when uh, there are uh, already things out there that, that define it. And I don't know a better answer to the question, what is repentance unto life? than in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which for those of you that uh, aren't familiar with uh, a Presbyterian Church in America, that, that's a part of our standards. The Shorter Catechism originally was written for children. Uh, now we're, we as adults are doing good to understand it. But a, a catechism is, uh, it, it means teaching, and it is in the, the form of questions followed by answers. So in the shorter catechism, and all that is is the more brief one, there's a larger catechism that's more lengthy, and then there's the confession of faith that is in paragraph style and chapter style. But in question 87 of the shorter catechism, <clears throat> it says, what is repentance unto life? And it begins... Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, now let's stop and define sin. And I'm going to go right to that same uh, shorter catechism, a different question, where it says, what is sin? And the answer is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So, God gives His law. When we ignore it, or deliberately, or even not deliberately, disobey it, that's sin. Help us understand sin. Think Jonah. This is God's way. Jonah goes that way. That's the easy way to understand sin. In fact, maybe even the better way is, if that's God's way, any other way, doesn't even have to be the opposite, could be very close, but, but not God's way, that's sin. So back to the definition of repentance. It's uh, repentance unto life as a saving grace whereby a sinner... Um, I'm, I'm finding my place, sorry, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin. So there, there it is, we can repent. Uh, one has to um, comprehend that he has sinned. And then the next step is realizing the nature of God. So out of a true sense of our sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, that sinner does with grief and hatred of his sin. So you've got you to quit loving your sin. You've got you to hate it. You've got to be sick of it, repulsed by it. So uh, you don't just turn from it, but you turn from it unto God. 
So if all you do is, is turn from your sin, if you don't turn to God, you're going to turn somewhere else. And it could even be another sin. So that it's not repentance until you turn from your sin to God, and then it's with the full purpose of and an endeavor after a new obedience. So you've got to say, you've got to believe <clears throat> at that moment when you repent, I don't ever want to do this again. It can't be, well, I'm going to repent and then just go on about my business and, yeah, I'll be doing this again, but then I'll just, I'll just repent again and, and God will forgive me. That's not turning from your sin with grief and hatred for your sin. So, you know, the classic definition is, you know, we're facing this way. That, that's God. We're facing toward our sin, and we literally turn around and we move toward God. That's the idea of repentance, and that's what that definition says. So let's look at our account, and I want you to see if there are things in the account that are pointing to repentance taking place by that definition. So we begin back with uh, the account again. We see uh, the second call. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, that's the second call. If you were here a few weeks ago and we had our first message, we talked about his, uh, his, his first call. And, uh, but I want you to notice there's a subtle difference between the two. It's very subtle. A lot of commentators make, make little of it, don't, don't even uh, uh, mention it, but, but I think there's some significance uh, there without making uh, too big a thing of it. The, the first call in Jonah 1.3, he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. And that's identical. For their evil has come up before me. And in the second call, he says, Call out against it the message that I tell you. So, we see God... I, I'm not sure whether he's not trusting Jonah as much as he did the first time or what it is at this point. I mean, this was all in his providential plan. But he says, look, you, you go there and tell them what I'm going to tell you to tell them. And so then we see in verse 3, completely different reaction than the first time. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in the breadth. Now, last time, his first call, it says, instead of uh, he um, arose and went to Nineveh, it says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. So you see the parallel. It's, you know, it's a, the same call, basically, exact opposite in terms of his response. 
This time Jonah rose and went to Nineveh. Now, that sounds good. It's like, okay, Jonah's got it together. But I want you to stay with me because we're going to see as we keep moving through this. Let's just say Jonah, by the end of the book, is going to need an attitude adjustment. And even in doing this, it, it looks like he's, he's, <clears throat> he's doing exactly what God tells him to do. All I'm convinced at this point is that he knew he couldn't run from God, and he didn't want to end up in the belly of a fish again. That's all I'm thoroughly convinced of. But he is going to, uh, at the very least, go through the motions uh, of obeying God here. Now, in verse 3, it talks about the size of the city. We mentioned that in our our very first message, too. Uh, It took three days to walk across it. Um, It might have, as I've mentioned, been the largest city in the world at that time. And it's likely that when, it, when it's talking about taking three days, it's not talking about just that inside those great walls that we talked about, but prob- that probably includes greater Nineveh, the suburbs and so on, because there were, uh, outside of that city, as was very common, other settlements grew up, and they were all kind of called Nineveh. They were all kind of the same city, uh, like Columbia and all of our uh, suburbs around and so on. But you can see that this is a, this is a big area. It was a, a great city in terms of the size. So Jonah's in Nineveh. Let's look at his message. Verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, different commentators have different views of this. Some feel like that's just a summary, that surely he said a, a lot of other things. He talked about his experience and, and, and God and uh, the nature of God and, and preached a full sermon and so on. And then there's, there's a few commentators, and I actually kind of fall in, in this end of it, that think, nope, that was his sermon right there. In other words, I think it's very possible that he was doing the bare minimum where he could still basically say, I'm obeying God, I'm doing what you told me to do, I'm giving him the gist of your message. Okay, I'll go tell him. But he's also telling them the part that he's kind of rooting for. Forty days, you are going to be destroyed. And that's his message. We don't really have any way of knowing whether, I mean, it's, it doesn't make uh, this uh, account untrue if the message was much larger than that. But I think it's very possible that he was simply going through the city and uh, saying, yet 40 days, and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Now, look at the next phrase, because this, this is the stunner to me. 
Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Verse 5. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now, this is very humbling for the preacher. Any preacher to read this. It wasn't about all the study he did and all of the preparation he did. I mean, that couldn't have taken long to prepare, let's face it. It wasn't about his delivery. It wasn't about great illustrations or or applications. He didn't even tell them what to do. He just said, you all are going to be destroyed. So the reason it's humbling for preachers is it's not about the preacher. It's about God doing something when he chooses to do something. And so here you have, uh, here you have Jonah possibly just uttering this one line, and everybody repents. I've got a lot of friends who are pastors, because um, who else is going to be friends with pastors other than other pastors? I mean, let's face it, you know. We're handy when you need us, but, you know. But we, you know, so we talk about our craft. And uh, I've, I've talked with a lot of pastors. We've, we, anybody who's been preaching for any length of time has experienced what I'm about to tell you. Uh, you know, you, you prepare for your message and so on, but some Sundays, well, let's just say everybody has a bad day now and then, Okay. And some Sundays, uh, you know, all week long, you don't feel right about the sermon. You, you, you've worked just as hard and everything, but it, it just doesn't feel like it's come together and so on. And, and so, you know, that makes you pray even more, <laughs> you know, which is a good thing. And then you get up and, and preach it, and you feel like as you preach, it kind of goes thunk, you know, like <laughs> fell right there. And you look at the look on people's faces and you go, yeah, it thunked right there. That's, that's about it. And so then you pray at the end and you kind of slink out of there and, uh, you know, you feel like, well, Lord, I'm, you know, sorry. I'm. And, and, and then here's the other thing. And then either at the door or later that day or during the week, you find out that that ministered to people. And then we as preachers are reminded, oh yeah, it's not about how I feel about it. It's not about my spirituality. It's not about my presentation. It's about God, God doing something with His Word. And that's how it always is. But some weeks it's just way more obvious to us than others. And that's what we see here. We see Jonah saying that. In the Hebrew, it's five words. (laughs) Five words. If that's all he uttered going through the city. And people, it, it changes them. Not the words, but the God behind the word. 
Then look at the king's response, verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his throne, uh, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now, that was the Middle Eastern symbol of grief. You see that in a lot of different countries. Sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth, I think, meaning, you know, taking off any, any royal robes and putting on something plain and uncomfortable and, you know, and showing that you're, you're grieving and the ashes, you know, which uh, you put over yourself. It, it's talking about a grief, and, and that's what took place. But I'm not sure if that's all we saw, the sackcloth and ashes, that we could conclude that that's repentance. Look at verse 7. And he issued a proclamation and, and uh, published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. So this is men, women, and children. He's calling for a fast. Hard to imagine. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Now, as powerful as that is, I'm not sure that if it stopped there, we could conclude that that's true repentance. Look at the end of verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. You know what? That's the kind of leaders we need right there. Ones that lead by being humbled before God. By dealing with their own sin and calling on others as well. We talked about what a violent uh, society Nineveh was. They were the ISIS of the day. And so here we see them turning from, from that sin and evidently toward God. And look what the king then says, verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You know what that is in the definition? Apprehension of the mercy of God. He's saying, maybe if we do this, God will relent. And mercy they did receive. Verse 10, we see God's response. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Now, next week, <laughs> we're going to spend the whole week talking about that particular aspect. How does a sovereign God relent? We'll look at this in other scripture where, where we see that so that we can understand that. So 
if you can, kind of put that on the side burner and, and get, get the point of this because we'll work through that before we see Jonah's final reaction. And then in a few weeks, <laughs> in a few weeks at the very end, we're going to spend a whole Sunday looking at Jonah and Jesus. And that's going to be right before Easter. But as we head toward the Lord's table, I'm going to give you a preview of that very last week. Listen to this. In Luke 11, verse 30, it says, For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, he's, and he's saying this to those who are there in Jesus' day. Jesus says, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What was greater than Jonah? It was Jesus. And that's who we have. It's not repentance unto something that we hope for someday. It's re repentance with a real hope and apprehension of the mercy of God because of what Jesus did on the cross. And it is precisely repentance that enables us to experience the the glorious aspects of the, our relationship with Christ. So when we as Christians repent, that's not a negative thing. It's not penance. It's not paying for our sin. It is turning from it toward God. And so repentance is a good and glorious thing and a joyful thing for the believer. And it is repentance, living a life of repentance that leads us to this table and the opportunity to look deeply and to turn from our sin toward God and to seal it with a meal that He has provided for us. A meal representing what enables us to go to Him freely and representing Jesus giving His body and shedding His blood for us as His people. This is the way the Apostle Paul addresses it. The Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Here's the warning for those that don't know Christ yet. Or for those who are refusing to repent. 
you're cherishing your sin more than you're cherishing Christ. And if you're at that point, he doesn't hate you. But he says, hold on, don't don't make a mockery of this table. Here's how he puts it. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a, a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so if today you, you're here and you don't know Christ yet, I'm really glad you're here. And I want you to watch what we're about to do. But I want you, when the, when the tray comes by you, I want you to just let it go on by you. Because I want what's best for you. And, and we've been warned that if we're, we partake when we shouldn't, if we're not a child of the living God, and if we're not repenting of our sin, then we are doing that which will call down judgment upon ourselves. So don't do that. But watch and listen and, and see if you can comprehend what we are doing here. But if, if God has worked in your heart today and, and even though you, you sin, which children of the living God do sin, even though you sin, you, you want to repent of that. You don't have to wait till after today. Do it now. Do it before these elements ever get to you. Do it while we're singing. Do it while we're praying. Repent. And let this strengthen you in turning toward Him with the apprehension of His mercy in Jesus Christ. Let's bow together. Lord, will you soften our hearts so that so that we can look deep and we can repent where we need to because we want to commune with you. We don't want to make a mockery of this precious table. So, Lord, cause your spirit to point out those sins we need to repent of and then give us the courage to turn from them, to love you more than we love them, in fact, to hate them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.